There's actually, a, 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 it's an older book, but it's called uh, Children the Challenge, written by a guy named uh, Rudolf Dreikers. And uh, he talks about the motives for mischief. Why mm. do children misbehave in the first place? And what he's come up with is brilliant. It's a short list. They, dis, they misbehave to get attention. They misbehave to get revenge. They misbehave to get control. And the last one is they misbehave to, to retain a position of helplessness. And what that means is uh, clean up your toys and the kid goes, ah! and the parent says, oh, it's easier if I clean it up myself. Yeah. You know, where they don't want to grow up. They, they like being little babies. Yeah. And it's, you know, one or a combination of those. When a kid, virtually any misbehavior in a child you can attribute to a combination or one or two of the four reasons get attention get revenge they're they're angry at you and they want to pay back maintain control they don't want to be controlled they want to be in charge or wanting to maintain a position of helplessness mm-hmm. it just, and it's a great tool you have that why you know when henry or charlie is doing their thing you can immediately think okay what's he looking for now but if you identify it how do you uh, is there a different course of action if i identify their motivating factor well, well there is i mean if they're uh, uh if they are doing it for attention uh, is it the kind of behavior that you want to give attention to like whining or ten- temper tantrum that type of thing you know there's some behaviors that, as I said before, catch them while they're being good. You know, dole out the attention mm-hmm. when they're being nice citizens with good table manners. Uh, you know, when they're fighting with each other, uh, if it's just a kind of annoyance that they're involved in, ignore it. Don't get involved. Don't get suckered into it because they often want that, you know, for you to take sides. Um, if it gets out of control where they're going to hurt somebody, then you got to intervene. That type of stuff. Yeah, I actually started my career uh, as a child psychologist at Shepherd Pratt and ended up with the FBI as a hostage negotiator. Yeah. (laughs) A true story about that. Uh, The the training program uh, that I went through was run by a a brilliant uh, FBI agent, a guy named Gary Nessner, who's sort of a legendary figure in the FBI and has written a brilliant book about his career as a negotiator. But uh, after the classwork at the FBI Academy, you start doing practical exercises at Hogan's Alley, which is a town at the FBI Academy down in Quantico. And each of the buildings represents, uh, is actually a reproduction of a famous crime site in the uh, history of the FBI. So the, uh, and you practice negotiation there where an agent is the bad guy who took hostages and you're the negotiator. Well, the, 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 bad guy had robbed a bank and was holding hostages in the bank and I was the negotiator and it was my very first time as a negotiator and when I finished up the hostages were released and the guy surrendered and Gary Nestner came up to me and he said doc that's the first time you've ever done a negotiation I'm really impressed you've got a natural talent for this and I said uh, Gary you know back at my hospital I have a private practice where I do a lot of marriage counseling marriage counseling hostage negotiation same thing, no yeah. difference. <laughs> Very interesting. I mean, I when I what I, I guess why do you say that exactly? I I want to maybe drill down a little bit further. How is it similar to to just a normal fight with the wife? 
Well, the, the marriage counseling is where you're talking to, to people who are, they're there because there's a problem in the relationship. And your goal as a marriage counselor is to try to identify what the problem is and then what solutions are there. And the similarity with hostage negotiations is the, the uh, hostage taker has a problem. He's stuck somewhere that he can't get out of, and he's trying to bargain with you over what he's going to do with the hostages. Or if it's a, a barricade situation where there's a bad guy with a gun uh, and there's uh, five felony warrants for him and the house is surrounded, uh, he doesn't want to come out because he knows he's going to go to prison for a long time, and he's trying to negotiate with you. So in in the broad sense, there's a lot of similarities, you know, where you're trying to you're in real time trying to assess a problem, uh, in real time talking to upset people. You know, people who come for marriage counseling don't come in with a big smile on their face. They usually come in looking unhappy, right. or at least one of them is very unhappy. Uh, so there's a lot of emotion attached to it, and uh, you want to make the, in the hostage barricade situation, you want to make the bad guy feel that you're on his side, that you're trying to help them uh, resolve a very difficult situation, and the same with marriage counseling. So it, it's not a stretch to say that some of the skills are, there's overlap. Well, I, I, I've joked with you before that I feel like I'm an unlicensed psychiatrist myself at times because I, the amount of information that's shared with me occasionally mm -hmm. in just in the nature of selling someone's home, right. helping them buy a home, you get to learn so much about the the intricacies of their relationship, right. who where the where the power struggle is, if you're not being heard, if you're not right. being listened to, oftentimes financial come into it where someone might not know the whole story of the family's financials. And the amount of times, and it's one of the more interesting parts of, I think, my job, which keeps it from being Groundhog's Day, Mm -hmm. is that you're dealing with people right and so by its very nature it's interesting yeah i could sell this house you know in the house down the street and it could be such a different experience yeah. for me because of the individuals involved yeah. and so i feel like i've learned some of those skills and i'd say if i had a new salesperson trying to understand how to be you know you know successful in this career mm -hmm. you have to understand enough of what you're describing right to at least get by yeah, because boy, if you blow it up and you add some fuel to that fire, not only are you not selling a house, <laughs> they're out the door, right? And they're going to tell other people about it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the uh, uh, human beings are are fascinating. There was a, a psychologist, famous psychologist named Gordon Alport, and towards the end of his career, someone was interviewing him and asked him why he became a psychologist, and his answer was because I'm nosy. Oh yeah. <laughs> But the other thing is that in our culture, uh, and a lot of it has to do with media, et cetera, but uh, people in our culture, unlike many other cultures, are very prone towards self-disclosure, uh, including self-disclosure that comes as a surprise. You know, it's like the, uh, the Greyhound bus effect, you know, where you sit down next to this oh. perfect stranger and by the end of the first hundred miles, you know their entire life story, whether you wanted to know or not. <laughs> well, I th I think that's it. I've listened to, I mean, it's kind of semi-controversial, but I I grew up, I used to do medical sales. I worked for Eli Lilly, mm -hmm. and I called a psychiatrist. I did that for seven years, and I had a lot of road time. I, I did the whole state of Maryland. I did most of the Eastern Shore. So I was listening to Howard Stern 
interview people. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I think he's the most interesting interviewer of all time because of the, he actually cares because he doesn't interview people he doesn't have interest in. Right. It's one of the reasons I've, I've decided to agree to, to do a podcast is because the only people you'll ever hear on this little podcast are people I'm fascinated by. And he just is fat, like within 30 minutes, he knows everything about these people. Mm -hmm. He knows he just everything just the, the, like down to their sexual habits, to the right. to, to what they ate for breakfast. And it's just I just find that so interesting. And I feel I, the amount of information you've probably learned in your career about people that have shared details they might not have ever shared with anyone else. I mean, is that part of the grat the gratification of that oh, job? Yeah. Uh I think the gratification in my case is uh, knowing that you've helped some people, knowing that you've uh, had uh, an, an impact. And uh, quite recently, I got this lovely letter from a fellow who was a patient of mine at Shepherd Pratt, and he, he was a, a Canadian gentleman that came down to the States to receive treatment at our hospital. I'm going to interrupt you just for a second, just in case you're listening and you're not familiar with Shepherd Pratt. Can you just explain? Yeah, she Shepherd Pratt is a private psychiatric hospital. It was established back in the 19th century by Moses Shepherd and Enoch Pratt. They were two uh, wealthy Quaker merchants in Baltimore, and they left a parcel of land in right off of uh, Charles Street, not far from where we are yeah, right now. Very close, yeah. And uh, they uh, uh, gave a, a chunk of money and it was back during the Civil War era. So uh, the the way the, the endowment and everything was set up was that they were not permitted that the uh, hospital, which was going to be a Quaker institution, and is, is still a Quaker institution to this day, uh, was chartered in a way that uh, allowed the interest from the endowment to be used to build the facility, and they weren't permitted to touch the principal because uh, Quakers are notoriously thrifty. And in any case, it really took a good, uh, because of the Civil War intervening, uh, it took a good uh, over 30 years. And what they would do is when they would accumulate enough interest to buy bricks, they would buy bricks and haul them in by wagon, mm -hmm. pile them up on the ground. When they had enough money to buy lumber, they would bring the lumber in. But it took a good 30 some years before they began construction. And I think the hospital actually first opened in around 1892 and uh, went on to become one of the leading psychiatric hospitals in the entire country. Hmm. And uh, and I had not heard of it until I was looking for internships. I had to do a year-long internship. And by the way, I'm a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. Oh, okay. You know the difference. Psychologists are smarter. <laughs> Is that so? <laughs> no, actually, there's an old joke about a, a psychiatrist would rather be obtuse than be right and a psychologist would rather be wrong than be obtuse. <laughs> and if you knew psychologists and psychiatrists, you'd probably feel there's a lot of wisdom in that. Interesting. Yeah, I've spoken to both, especially in my last career, so I've had some experiences. But what I find is that they're also just people. Mm -hmm. And the difference is just because it says, you know, you address them as doctor, boy, have I learned that's not... Not the case. Oh, my Lord, it's it could be very different. Well, I'm a firm believer in the bell-shaped curve. You know, there are great plumbers at one end of the curve, and on the other end of the curve, there are horrible plumbers, and in the middle are average plumbers. Right. And the same applies to any 
profession in the world, including medicine and psychiatry and psychology. You know, there's that uh, 15% that are really, you know, they'll, they'll be Hall of Fame, you know, right. 20 game season winners, things like that. And at the other end of the 15%, these, the ones that end up in jail for malpractice and things. And then in the middle, you have the, the average, the, the, you know, the 65% that are average. What's the, I heard another line that the doctors used to have a million jokes about themselves, but they'd say, you know what you call uh, the guy that graduated last at medical school? Doctor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, oh that makes yeah, sense. That, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. So, um, well, get, I mean, just, I want to now kind of revisit your experiences here in Lutherville. So, I mean, I, I can't possibly fit your whole career and everything I want to ask you in a, in a one podcast segment. But uh, here in Lutherville, this is where you've lived. It's the Towson area. It's right. north of Baltimore, what, 20 minutes mm-hmm. north of Baltimore. So you've lived here for 40 or 50 years. How, how have you seen it change over that period of time? Well, the good news about Lutherville is that the, the historic community area has changed very little in 50 years. And the community association and the leadership of the community association really get the credit for that. And the, you, ha, you have this, and I don't think this is unique to Lutherville, but there's this relatively small group of people over the last 50 years uh, that have done the heavy lifting for the community. And I don't think that, and my wife Kathleen was on the uh, community association board for a while, but I don't think... Uh, that the membership in the community association has ever been much above about 50% of the residents in the community, which I think is unfortunate because everybody benefits from it. But this group has successfully prevented development in the uh, community. When we bought, when we moved to Lutherville in 1971, the Charles Street extension uh, was already on the, the county maps. And this was where Charles Street extended right through Lutherville, uh, would have taken off the whole front of our property, would have taken off the house at the corner of um, Morris and and all the homes on Front Avenue with a four-lane version of Charles Street that ran all the way up to Timonium Road and joined up with 83, with the Beltway. I'm sorry, with the 83 uh, Expressway, Route 83. And uh, the Community Association fought that tooth and nail. We had a county council woman, uh, Barbara Bacher, that uh, was supporting us. And she played a big role along with a whole bunch of other people in having the, the historic district established. And on purpose, the sign, the marker for it is set up right in the, the right of way of the Charles Street extension, hmm. where it says you're in a a national historic site. Now they did that on purpose. That selected that, but uh, in any case, uh, we moved. Uh, my wife found Lutherville and found our first house in Lutherville on uh, located on uh, Kurtz Avenue, and we were there renting the house for a couple of years, and then the house went up that we were renting went up for sale, uh, but we decided to look at other properties, and we found our place uh, next door to your home and uh, i think your home was built in uh, uh, 1856 it's one of the very first I think according to the what i've seen it's 1852 1852 and I think right. yours is a few years later right? yeah yeah ours was built we thought it, 
Ours wasn't built until 1875, uh, but it turned out that uh, that date came from some another for another reason. And our place, uh, when when they did the sesquicentennial, uh, they had a historian really go over the, all the records about the community. And our house was apparently built in 1860, right before the start of the Civil War. So eight years, it, it was built originally as the headmaster's house for the college. When I the, thought it was the mother's home of Dr. Morris who built my home. No, uh, I, I might be wrong. My understanding was that the the connection with the Morris family it, is that it was originally built as the headmaster's house for the college. And uh, in fact, uh, there's a, um, somewhere we have a copy of the, uh, like the uh, program for the girls' college, the Lutheran mm. Seminary for Women. Um, and everyone's and, probably seen that or driven by it. Right. That's from the area. It's, right. It's a pretty large building. Right. It's, right and it's now a, a, basically a nursing care facility. Right. And uh, next to it is our, a picture of our house, which is cl- clearly our house, and it's identified as a headmaster's house. Interesting. And the date on that is about the early 1860s. And so how have you seen just this county in general? Because you, for, what, 30 years, you've been a part of the, uh, you know, the Baltimore County Police Department. Right. In that, in that division. So how, how have you seen Baltimore County specifically change over all these years? Well, the county itself has really grown. I mean, it's, uh, in fact, when I got involved uh, with, was hired uh, with the county police department by a legendary law enforcement figure named Neil Behan, a wonderful person. He passed away recently and I went to a viewing for him. Um, but uh, he was, uh, he had a fascinating career. He, Many people have heard or seen the movie Serpico. Uh, it was a very early movie by Al, with Al Pacino starring in it, and it was based on a true story of, of uh, Serpico was a cop in the New York City Police Department, and when he right when he got out of the police academy, he became aware of a great deal of corruption among police officers in in the uh, New York City Police Department, and he began reporting what he was observing up the chain of command and uh, discovered that he was reporting it to people who were also corrupt. Hmm. But eventually he got to a deputy commissioner who was named Neil Behan and Behan reported to the FBI and the go- the governor of the state, et cetera. And it led to a whole effort to clean up the police department. And this was back in the sixties, uh, I think is when that happened. And uh, Neil Behan at that point had already been with the city police department New York City Police Department for over 20 years or so. So, And he was a marked man uh, after he really exposed all the corruption uh, to the uh, federal authorities and state authorities. So he took a retirement, came to Baltimore County, and took over the police department. Uh, and at that point, he used to joke that it was kind of like uh, uh, Andy and uh, Mayberry RFD, you know, where you had this little bitty a police department with not much business. Yeah. Uh, but he arrived at a time when the county was kind of going through a, a, a growth explosion. And he ended up hiring me to run psych services. But uh, wonderful, great. I, I've been fortunate not only in my family, uh, the support that I've had from my family throughout my lifetime, uh, but the Marine Corps experience had a huge impact on my life. 
but I've also had wonderful mentors, and I would count uh, Chief Neil, Neil Behan among that group. The uh, fellow who hired me at Shepherd Pratt, Dr. Bob Gibson, who was a another superstar in his profession. He was president of the American Psychiatric Association. And he uh, basically adopted me when I came here as an intern because he was a, a Navy doctor and I was a Marine. So you had the Navy and the Marine Corps. Uh, and we joke that the Marines is the men's department of the Navy. Right. And, but they're, you know, they're sister services. And he was all, he was from the Philadelphia area where I'm from. So we had a lot in common. But he played a, an enormous impact on, on my career. And how specifically do you think that, that that's changed in the county? So getting back to just the county itself, how is it, how's the county changed as a citizen just watching it change? Well, it's, um, uh, you know, some of the changes have been for the better, some not so, not so much. I think that, uh, uh, you know, the city itself uh, has had, uh, for years, has had terrible problems. I mean, it. Uh, to put it in perspective, I talked earlier about the whole phenomenon of, uh, of uh, adverse childhood events on children. Uh, we've seen what's happened in, in the city with the crime rate and, and the homicide rate and everything. Uh, in the, the 50-some years that I have lived in the, and worked in the Baltimore metropolitan area, the uh, homicide rate uh, in the city the the body count is between in the 50 some years is between 15 and 20,000 homicides and for every homicide there are two or three people there's a, a two to three time ratio of people who have gunshot wounds non-fatal gunshot wounds mm. so for every time you hear of a homicide add two or three other victims mm. that have gunshot wounds that often result in lifetime disability yeah. and millions of dollars in medical care over a period of the person's lifetime. Uh, but, uh, I mean, that's, and when, when you're talking about those kinds of numbers, you know, where you have fifteen to 20,000 young, mostly African-American males, in that group, there had to be somebody who could have discovered the cure for cancer, the, somebody who could have written a great American novel. The waste of talent is mind-boggling. And uh, what's your reason... I mean, this is a loaded question because I don't think anyone has a specific reason, but of all people, you might. I mean, why, why haven't we seen a significant change? It's not like we're all not aware of this issue. Everyone well, I know seems to be aware of it. Why? How? I, I how? think it's because of gradualism. You know, people can, it's like the old thing about throwing the frog in the boiling water. You know, if you put, just put them in a pot of water and you don't gra just gradually start turning the heat up, they won't jump out because it, takes time it, it occurs gradually and, and human beings have an enormous ability to tolerate things particularly if they de develop over time right and um i often think you know what would have happened back in the 1950s if overnight baltimore had had more than 300 homicides in a year it'd be a military they, zone oh absolutely they would declared martial law right uh, there would have been some dramatic intervention if it happened overnight. <laughs>